0: As we continue our study of Acts, let's start out by thinking about this for a moment. Who wants to be last? No one wants to be the last one picked for the team. No one wants to be last place in a beauty contest. No one wants to be asked to help someone out by standing up in their wedding because everybody else said no. We want to be counted worthy, if not first, then at least somewhere close to the top of the list. We see all of these things as good, playing on a team, winning a contest, or sharing in life. But would you want to be the first pick for an apparently losing team? Would you want to be first place for least attractive? Would you want to be, you are my first choice to do something that no one wants to do, going to the dentist and getting a tooth pulled, feeling sick, Working long hours and getting no credit or recognition from them, do we still want to be counted worthy in that second set of circumstances? The passage that we're going to look at this morning we see God working, we'll see the opposition of the Jewish leadership to the newly founded church, and we'll see the attitude of the apostles toward the persecution that they experience. Are you counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name? If you want this privilege, and the apostles did count it as a privilege, I think that these things must be true about you. Let's start in Acts chapter 5 and verse 12. And the first one that must be true if we want to be counted worthy of this privilege is that we have to be participating in God's work. See this in verses 12 through 16. I think we see this first of all, that they were a part of God's work by gathering with God's people. It says at verse 12, at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among all the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico but none of the rest dared to associate with them however the people held them in high esteem i first of all there was a gathering of god's people as a sign of unity it says in the last phrase of verse 12 that they were all in or with one accord they were unified but they were gathering with god's people despite the risk We see this at the beginning of verse 13. None of the rest dared to associate with them. We have to ask ourselves, who are the rest? Are the rest the rest of the believers and the ones who gathered only the apostles? Are the rest people who are sort of standing off and watching these early believers to see what's going to happen to them in light of the opposition of the religious leadership? If it's the... Uh, If it's Christians, are they standing far off because of what we looked at last week, the judgment on Ananias and Sapphira, and so no one wants to get close to the apostles because they're concerned of God's wrath? Or do they recognize that the reason that Ananias and Sapphira was judged was because of their disobedience and that it was not a reason not to associate? I think that most likely that those who fear to get too close were unbelievers who are watching who were interested in what was going on, but who were afraid of the wrath of the religious leaders if they associated too closely with the early church. Not only can we be a part of what God is doing by gathering with his people, but we can also be a part of what he's doing by experiencing his power. We saw this first in verse 12. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place. And we'll come back to that in verse 15. But in verse 14, we see that the early church saw God's power to save souls. All the more, believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. Why were the early Christians gathering with the apostles? They were gathering with the apostles because they were united around a common belief. As it says in verse 14, they were believers in the Lord. They believed in the things that were true about Jesus as the one who had been promised to pay for sin, as the one that, who had been promised to be sent by God. They were believers in the Lord. And the, the testimony, the evidence of that belief, was that they joined themselves to the existing members of the early church. It says they were constantly added to their number. We saw this same language in Acts 2 when it says that there were about 3,000 added that day, we saw it later in uh, the next few chapters when it says the number of the men grew to be about 5,000, there are those who are seeing God's work, being converted by God's power. The evidence of that conversion is them joining themselves with the early church. Not only did the early church see God's power in the gospel, which we certainly see today, if we turn from our sin and turn to God, we can see that same power today to transform our lives, to give us a a holy standing before God, and to give us a hope of eternal life with God. But they also saw God's power demonstrated through healing. We see this in verse 15. To such an extent, they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Note the parallels here to the ministry of Jesus that you see, for example, in Mark 6. The people are coming out. They're hearing that Jesus is coming. They're bringing those who are sick so they might be healed. Uh, Certainly you remember the account probably of the, the four friends who bring the man who's paralyzed. And they're so eager to get to Jesus that when they can't get in the house... They take up some of the tiles off the roof so that they can lower him down in the midst of the crowd so that Jesus can heal him. We see this same sort of excitement about the ministry and the exercise of God's power in these early days of the church. And this, uh, that even Peter's shadow would fall on him, uh, brings to mind the, the instance where a woman was healed just by touching the edge of Jesus' robe. Or what Paul uh, will see later in Acts 17, that uh, or uh, later in the book of Acts, that even things that were near him, he, people were taking those and people were being healed. Now, what's the difference between uh, these sorts of healings and healings that we might uh, hear of today? And the difference is this. These who were uh, participating in the healings of the apostles, they were all getting healed. We see that at the end of verse 16. They were all being healed. Furthermore, It's as though the power of God was spilling out of the apostles so much that just being close to them was enough for them to be healed. And that's certainly not something that we see today. Does God have the power to heal people? Sure. But has he appointed specific people through whom that healing would flow, as in the time of the apostles? I would say no. And yet we see this as an evidence, as a testimony of God's work that not only were people coming from Jerusalem, but verse 16, also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick. Not only was it God's power in healing the sick, but also those who were afflicted with unclean spirits, those who were possessed by demons that were coming and being in the presence of the apostles. These demons were being cast out of them, they were being freed from that bondage. We see a number of examples of this in the Gospels and in other places in Acts the affliction of being demon-possessed for those who don't belong to God, that the demons did not have their best interests in mind. There were those that would try to fling people into the fire or into water so that they would be burnt or they would be drowned. There would be those that would uh, cause great physical afflictions so they couldn't walk normally and all these other sorts of things. Even over these things, God's power is clear. And you think back to the accusation that the religious leaders had of Jesus. I'm sure it had to be going through their minds again. We said that Jesus had a demon. We said that he was crazy. And now here's his followers doing the exact same miracles that we tried to explain away. What are we going to do about it? I think that leads to their response in verse 17. If we want to be counted worthy, we have to participate in God's work. There are differences between God's work in that day and in this day, but the things that are the same are the gathering of God's people despite the risk and the seeing of God's power primarily in God transforming people's lives through their belief in the gospel, through God giving them new life through the gospel. And so we ought to participate in God's work today. But it's not enough just to participate in God's work when everybody's excited about it when there's no one saying anything against it, when there's no opposition, we also have to persist in the face of opposition. And we see this from verse 17 down through the end of the chapter. Why do we persist in the face of opposition? The first reason is because God is greater than those who might oppose you. Start in verse 17. The high priest rose up with all his associates, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. We might be afraid in the face of opposition because those who oppose may have the power to punish us for following God in some way. In this case, they were clearly motivated by jealousy against God's work. Why were they jealous? I think the high priest, the Sadducees, wanted the respect of the people. They didn't want anything that was going to distract from their position, their reputation, their uh... the way that the people viewed them and here come the apostles doing these works and instead of being drawn to the high priest and to the other religious leaders and and seeing what they had to say and and paying attention to them people are being drawn over here what's the natural response if you've been the focus of attention and now someone else is the focus of attention jealousy and that's what's going on and it seems that the high priest and his associates were willing to do anything To get that respect. Connected with that, I would say that not only may they be motivated by jealousy, they might also have the authority to pervert justice. Why do I say that? Well, clearly they had the authority to arrest the apostles. Verse 18, they laid hands on them. But had the apostles broken any laws? No. And so they were simply arresting them because they had the power to do so and in an attempt to silence them. Now, certainly this was something that was unjust, but it was not something that was a surprise to God. So why might we be afraid of opposition? Because those who oppose might punish. But why can we remember that God is greater than those who oppose? Because He has the power to deliver if He so chooses. Look at verse 19. But during the the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, taking them out, he said, Go stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this... They entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. God can deliver you if he chooses to do so from those who oppose. Why do I say that? God has power that the lost can't or won't believe in. According to Acts 23.8, we learn that the Sadducees rejected to a large extent the role of angels and God's use of them in the events of the world. And the specific nature of their opposition is unclear, and yet... Here's something where the Sadducees were concerned about political power. They weren't primarily concerned about following God. That may sound strange. Why would it be that this is a religious group of people who aren't primarily concerned about religious things? Look at the testimony of what the Sadducees did in the Gospels and in Acts. Their primary concern was to gain and to keep political power. There are parallels with this to various religious organizations throughout history, that their goal has been less about serving God and more about political temporal power. We don't need to go into all the details of this, but here's the simple point from here. They would not have expected God to send an angel to deliver the apostles because their focus was materialistic. It was on the here and now. It was about how can we maintain control over the people and stay in good standing with Rome. Those seem to be their primary concerns. And here God sends an angel and works miraculously to deliver the apostles. But God didn't deliver them so that they could run and hide. God delivered them so that they could keep doing the work. And I think we could argue that as well. If God delivers us from opposition, we shouldn't take it as an opportunity to say, all right, I'm never going to do that again because it was hard, because there was opposition. But instead, how can I continue serving God? The angel, first of all, speaks to reassure them and to command them what God wants them to do. Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. And at this point, they have a choice. They could say, you know what? Maybe it will be easier and more safe and less risky if instead of going to the temple, which is the exact spot that they're going to be watching for us when they discover that we've escaped, maybe we should go somewhere else, maybe to another part of Judea, maybe to an entirely different region. Maybe that would be a better idea. But God had given this com- them this commission to go and to speak the words of life. And so what do they do? Verse 21, they obey. And they didn't start later in the day. They didn't start at the end of the day. It says about daybreak, they entered in the temple and began to teach. And so it's quite possible that they were tired. It's certainly Likely that there was a measure of fear, and yet despite those things, they did what God had commanded them to do. We see that God's deliverance, furthermore, is confusing to those who oppose his work. We see this starting in the second half of verse 21. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought but the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. What do we see from these verses? Men act according to their plans. Verse 25 and 26, But someone came and reported to them, The men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. God's intervention didn't fit with their plans, and yet they seemed to stick with it and say, Well, we're going to go ahead with what we're going to do anyway. Imagine if you were one of the the priests, one of the Sadducees, and you knew that you had put someone in jail and they go to get the person out of jail so you could continue the trial, and they're not there. And not just they're not there, like it looks like someone had broken them out of jail, but everything's locked, the guards are standing there, no one has any idea that they're gone. Do you think that would make you potentially question whether your goals and purposes and focus in life was the correct one? If your goal was focused on the things of this life and potentially not having much concern about god and supernatural things and and what would be pleasing to him you would think that it would cause them to at least pause for a moment but they go right back to their first plan all right let's let's question them but they're a little more wary at this point they're a little more hesitant it said they brought them back without violence but interestingly it was not because they were afraid of what god might do it's because they were afraid of the people and we see in this again parallels between the ministry of the apostles the ministry of Jesus in the early days of Jesus ministry the religious leaders feared the people they didn't want to come after Jesus they certainly started out by despising him and continued to hating him and moving toward wanting to murder him but their malice was restrained for a long time because Jesus had the favor of the people and so ironically God uses the fact that they feared the people instead of God to restrain them and to protect the apostles, at least at this point. I think we have to see also that God's purpose is more important than threats. Why do we keep following God in these circumstances? God is greater and connected with that. His purpose is more important than the threats that people may make. Starting in verse 27. When they had brought them, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You may be told to stop telling the gospel at some point in your time of following God. The council members repeated their command to stop teaching in this name. This was something that they had said back in chapter 4, verse 18. They said, don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They're repeating that command. So certainly from the perspective of the apostles, If the authorities are saying to you a second time, don't do this, and you persist in it, there's certainly going to be an expectation. They're not just going to let you off with a warning the next time that it takes place. I think the thing that was eating at the council members was their guilt. It says, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Were they guilty of crucifying Christ? Yes. Yes. They were not actually the ones who nailed Christ to the cross, but they were the ones who incited the Romans to do it. They were not the ones who murdered him directly, but they were the ones who stirred up the people so that Pilate would listen to their pleas and release a sinner instead of the one who was perfect. Crucify the one who had no sin on behalf of those who had much sin. And certainly we saw from Acts 2 that this fulfilled God's plan, that it didn't happen by accident, that God orchestrated these circumstances so that they came together at a specific point in time so that Christ would be crucified, murdered from the perspective of those who committed the sin, sacrificed from the perspective of God who said, the only way for any of us to have our sins forgiven is for one who is perfect to die in our place. They didn't want to acknowledge this. They didn't want to be reminded of it. And even though it was true, they kept trying to suppress the fact that they had killed Christ. Not only was there a measure of guilt and and jealousy and fear working in and among the religious leaders, but there was also a question I think the apostles asked themselves and that we must at some point ask ourselves, which is, do you believe that this name is the name above all other names? That's what they had said back in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. What do they say? Verse 29, they say, God is a higher authority. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Now, as we talked about previously in their last encounter with the religious leaders, this was not an excuse To do whatever you want if the person in authority over you is not following God in some way. It's not, I don't have to obey anything that a lost person says. It's not, I don't have to, I can disobey everything that authorities over me say if they are not following God. But rather, when they tell you to stop doing something that God said you must do, then you have the opportunity to say God is the higher authority. I have to obey him rather than you. The apostles repeated the message about the name. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Don't talk about him again. What do they do in two verses later? They repeat the gospel message. They say, you don't want to be reminded of your guilt. This is the one thing that you must be reminded of. Because until you deal with that guilt, there is no hope for your soul. So when someone says, never talk to me again about Jesus, I don't think that you should necessarily be in their face the next moment. I recognize that family situations are complicated And ongoing, keep looking for opportunities to present the gospel. Because if Jesus is the only name by which we can be saved, and if dealing with our guilt before God is the one thing that must take place before we can be in a right relationship with Him, how can we do anything but continue to proclaim the gospel message? They repeated furthermore their commission from God, and, and this was in some ways unique to them, but not disconnected with what God has commanded us today to continue in. It says, We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. How does this connect with how the book started? Acts 1.8, The Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. They had a very clear sense that that was God's purpose for them. And while our sphere of witness and some of the ways that it looks and the day-to-day working out of it are different today than in the ministry of the apostles, the same Spirit who worked in them is the same Spirit who works in us. The same commission that God gave them, the same message that they were to take, we too ought to take that message to people around us today. So, not only should we follow God in the face of opposition because God is greater than the opposition, but also because God can provide unexpected allies. Look at verse 33. But when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. What can we take away from that? Sinners may react violently to being reminded of their guilt. We don't want to be reminded of our sin. We want to think well of ourselves. One of the hardest things to do is when someone says, hey, I did something wrong, and your response is to say, you're right. Because we want to make excuses for ourselves. We want to go after that person and say, but you did this, this, and this. That's exactly what the Sadducees did. They heard the message, the testimony, of the apostles, and they were ready to kill them if it was the only thing that would silence them. They were ready to go that far. And yet God protected them, protected the apostles from one set of unbelievers by using another unbeliever. And, you know, people have argued that the man who stands up next was potentially one who was following Christ in secret. I don't think that we have any clear evidence that that's the case. We don't know that it was not the case. As far as we know, here's one of their number simply saying, let's rein it in for a second, guys, before it gets out of hand. What does he say? His basic argument is, take caution. Verse 35, and he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. All right, calm down for a minute. Let's think about what we're going to do. And then he gives some reasons for why he would say that. First of all, he says, because the work of men is going to fail whether we take action or not. Verse 36, for some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee, rose up in the days of the census and drew away people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were scattered. What's he saying? If it's a political rebellion, the Romans are going to deal with it, or it's going to fall apart from within, and we should really stay out of it. What else does he say? Verse 38, So in the present case I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. What does he say? He says the work of God is going to succeed even if we oppose it. The work of men will fail even if we don't intervene, and the work of God is going to succeed even if we oppose it. And then not only is it going to take place anyway, but we're going to be found to be opposing God. He seems to be the only one in the council, at least the only one we have record of, that is thinking about the fact that there is at least the possibility that these things are true and that this is God's work and that they should not be opposing it. Everybody else is so wrapped up in consolidating their political power and having a good reputation with the people and all of these other sorts of things that they seem to not be recognizing the reality that these things are truly from God. And yet Gamaliel says, let's stop and think about this for a minute. Just a side note, this was the same Gamaliel who trained Paul, who becomes a key character later in the book of Acts. Not only should we follow God in the face of opposition because God is greater, because God can raise up unexpected allies to help us, but then finally, because God is worth temporary suffering. They took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then released them. What is verse 40 reminding us of? You will suffer as a Christian. And say, I haven't suffered yet. At some point in your life, whether to a greater or lesser extent, you will suffer as a Christian. It could be as minor as someone saying what you're saying is foolish and mocking you. It could be as major as saying, don't say that again or I will come after you and hurt you if you keep saying these things. Generally, we haven't seen the second extreme in our country, but it is certainly a possibility. This connects with what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12 and 1 Thessalonians 3.4. 2 Timothy 3.12, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will face persecution. 1 Thessalonians 3.4, don't be surprised by the persecution that you're facing because when I was with you, I warned you about it. Why would unbelievers persecute those who follow God? Because ultimately it's not about you, it's about their opposition to the Jesus that you serve. Jesus put it this way, if they hated me they will hate you the servant is not greater than his master so if you want to associate yourself with jesus the opposition the hatred that people have toward him toward the message that he's the only way toward all the truth that the bible reveals about him at some point that's not going to just be directed toward him it will also be directed toward you this is i think is an important question for us to to ask ourselves as we profess to follow god Am I only willing to follow God when it's easy? Am I only willing to follow God if life goes the way I want it to go? Am I only willing to follow God as long as nobody opposes me? I would argue that there's an extent to which a faith that says, I only follow God when it's easy, no one says no to me, and all these sorts of things, is not the sort of faith that we see described here in the book of Acts. Does this mean that we seek out suffering unnecessarily? No. But does it mean that we hide who God is, what he's done in our lives, and the message of the gospel simply because it will be harder if we, if we explain it to people? No, we can't do that. Furthermore, and this is perhaps an even harder truth to consider, you should rejoice when you suffer. Look at verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame For his name. We want to be counted worthy for the good things of life. But are we willing to be counted worthy of things that are hard and difficult? Think about what it says in 2 Thessalonians 1. God, you who are troubled, rest with us. Because God will give you rest that all of these trials and persecutions and difficulties that you are going through are a sign of God's favor on you. Suffering is a sign that you belong to God. Hebrews 12 reminds us that He uses it to draw us closer and to purify us. Not in a sense of punishment of sin, but rather because when we go through suffering, it helps us to see what really matters. When we go through difficulty... It helps us to make a decision between what's important and what's not important. It helps us to say, do I love you, God, only when you give me the things that I want or also when you glorify yourself through things that I don't fully understand and through things that are hard and through things that will give me opportunities to take the gospel to other people that I would not have crossed paths with any other way? Are we still willing God in those times suffering as a Christian is a noble privilege unlike suffering because you deserve it Peter will remind us later of that in his epistle in chapter 4 15 and 16 he says let none of you suffer as an evildoer or a meddler or a thief but if anyone suffers for the sake of Christ he is blessed and then the last thing and and if the first two are hard, this one is perhaps even harder. You should keep following God. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. Because you could say, I face suffering for God's name. You could say, I'm rejoicing in it, and then you could say, But I'm done. I'm not going to persist in this. It's too hard. What did they do? Verse, uh, verse uh, thirty or twenty-eight. Don't keep teaching in this name. Back chapter four, and and verse eighteen. Don't speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Chapter five and verse forty-two. What do they do? They kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Again, if your faith stops. When you face the sort of opposition that the apostles face, it's either very weak or it's not real. And if it's weak, let's cry to God, increase my faith. If it's not real, what's the right response? God, I don't know that I really follow you because now there's this hard circumstance and I don't want to follow you anymore. I'd rather go back to this because it's easier. God, maybe I don't truly know you. God, Help me to know you, to believe in you, to trust you as I should. While it's strange to think of suffering as a privilege, as something to be counted worthy of, that we should desire at some level, the apostles certainly thought that it was. What about you? Do you view suffering for Christ as a Christian, as a privilege, or as something to be avoided at all costs? and if we want this privilege what first must be true we have to be a part of god's work because if we're not a part of god's work we don't have to worry about this if you're not trying to accomplish god's work in the world no one's going to oppose you because that's what they're opposed to they're generally not opposed to you individually if you want this privilege you must persevere in god's work because if you're doing god's work and somebody says stop you're going to be in trouble and You're like okay i'm done you're not going to face this sort of suffering because you, you, you give in and, and so the tension is off. And they say, all right, you're, we don't have to worry about you. We're not going to come after you. What is this passage saying? I think it's saying, count yourself privileged if you suffer for Christ. Stay faithful in His work that you might share in both the suffering and the glory to follow. Consider the example of Christ. And I'm not saying that our experience is precisely the same as Christ's. There are many things about the life and ministry of Christ that were unique to Him and were one-time things and all of that. But consider Christ. When was He exalted? After the cross. When do we receive our reward? After this life. So the question that each one of us has to ask is will I follow God faithfully in this life as he has called me to do, do I see it as worth it to follow God? Do I count following him as a privilege, even if it means that I give up or lose or suffer in some way by the standards, the measure of this world? Let's pray. Lord, these are difficult truths to consider. And yet I think that they are timely truths for us to think about, ponder, be changed by. Lord, we want to follow you if it's going to make life easier. If you're the answer to conflict in marriage, if you're the answer to money problems, if you're the answer to... Uh, making success having success in business, getting the 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 things that we want out of life, who wouldn 't want that? But if following you means that not only may we not, we may not get all of those things, we may actually lose some of the things that we hold dear. Are we still willing to follow you and it 's not that this is in some sort of vindictive way. It's not as though you're coming after us to punish us or make us miserable because we follow you, but rather because you use the circumstances and the trials and the difficulties of this life to produce in us endurance, to strengthen our faith, to cause us to testify of you more faithfully and more fully. Lord, my hope and prayer is that every one of us here today would know you as our Savior and as our God. Because if we do, if we are trusting in Jesus and what He did in our place, then even though we may face insurmountable obstacles in life, even though we may go through things that are so hard, we can be confident that our home in heaven is secure, that our relationship with you is strong, And that we need not fear the unknown because you are a God who sees the end from the beginning. And even if we don't see our next step, you see it and you are there with us, strengthening us, upholding us, accomplishing your work in us. Lord, we pray that you might increase our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.